0: Welcome to episode 311 Z's or 311
1: of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. There's nothing in this world I do.
0: Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know a topic that just never gets old? What? Actually, that was like a really open-ended question, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah,
1: there's a lot of topics that don't, don't get old. Jesus, Jesus, the Bible, every yes. Sunday
0: school answer that you've ever been taught to regurgitate at a moment like this. But in addition to all of those, we're coming back to repentance. And in some ways, repentance as a spiritual discipline, which I love that we're about to talk about this, because I think that's maybe not like a hot take, but like a moderately, like what's moderately hot take? Like a light hot take or like a a semi-warm take on something? Like a comfortably warm take. Okay. Yes. I like that. Like a warm blanket that you throw on yourself on a cold November rainy day.
1: Like uh, I just got into the car with black leather seats and they're a little bit toasty (laughs) take. Like not not that hot, but just a little bit hot.
0: Yeah. That's pretty good. Everybody knows that. Well, maybe some people know that situation when you're freezing in that situation. You're right on. So we're going to be talking about repentance as spiritual discipline, but First, and perhaps in some ways, foremost, we need to get into some affirmations and denials. And I'm going to start with the negative first and go all denial all the time, or sorry, just for this little segment. What are you denying against on this episode?
1: So this one is one of those denials takes a little bit of explanation. So what I'm calling it is I'm denying the loss of a genuine villain. So I've seen a a couple films or TV shows lately where, um, they're actually kind of like retroactively taking a villain and now like giving them a backstory that makes them either more sympathetic or not a villain at all. So the specific example that I watched yesterday, and it was it was an entertaining movie. There wasn't any like anything offensive in terms of quality, but it was uh, Hocus Pocus two. So the, the movie Hocus Pocus, uh, all of you out there who remember Hocus Pocus coming out with Bette Midler, get ready to feel wicked old. The movie came out like twenty seven years ago. Wow. Yeah, just let that sink in for a second. But um they made a sequel and that's like the big hot thing in Hollywood is like making sequels to like things that came out 2 or 3 decades ago. I think they're realizing that like all the people who had like loved movies back then have money now so we should make some movies that cater to them. And I don't want to spoil the movie because it's it's, you know, it's Halloween season and people might watch it, but a major part of the movie was sort of giving the three witches from the first movie like a backstory and a motivation, and then almost like a redemption arc. And so this is actually a, a theme that's been really common in a lot, of, um, a lot of movies and films lately, where the villain is still a bad guy, but they have like a good reason. So like even like Thanos in uh, the Avengers movie, like he was a bad guy, but he was doing something wrong for what he thought was altruistic reasons, right? He was trying to like preserve life by restoring balance the universe, but he does that by killing a lot of people. Um you know uh there there's just a lot of a lot of that common in a lot of um a lot of shows even even in in some senses um I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler but even in this new Lord of the Rings show that I'm so excited about one of the things that they've done is they've given orcs as like a race. They've given them a backstory that makes them somewhat sympathetic, which probably won't be super surprising to people who have followed or who've read the stories, um, read the original source material. They won't be too surprised at it, but they've done it in a way where like, well, they, they're sympathetic villains. And I, I'm not sure exactly where I want to go with this, except that. It used to be that most stories had a clear good guy and a clear bad guy, and the bad guy was bad, and the good guy was usually good. Sometimes there was like an, a moderately good guy or a sort of bad guy that became a good guy, but it was usually not the case that the the bad guy remained the bad guy, but just wasn't was like kind of a good guy, but still the bad guy. Right. And I think, you know, even if you just compare the first Hocus Pocus movie where there was literally just these three witches that wanted to eat children so they could live forever, like a really classic like Grimm's fairy tale kind of story. Uh, and the the good guys learned a lesson about themselves and about morality and ultimately defeated the bad guys. But there was nothing redeeming, nothing uh altruistic. There was nothing redeeming or um you know, there was no sympathy or motivation for the bad guys. They were just the bad guys. Now same, same basic story, same more or less the same cast apart from like the kids are are different kids, but now the witches have a backstory and they are sympathetic and like, there's a reason for the way they are. And then they had, there has to be a redemption arc. So I just think it's a trend in uh, sort of a humanistic trend in our culture where we want to say like, even the bad guys have a, have a reason for why they're the bad guys. Right. So I'm just denying that, like there are bad guys and there are good guys. I suppose this is a reform show. So there's bad guys and then there's bad guys who've become good or are going to become good, blah, blah, blah. Amen. Um, but it, it's just a it's a disappointing trend. And then there's also sort of a converse trend and I won't go off on this too long, but there's a converse trend of like the good guys also now have to have some element of like they're also kind of bad guys. Right. Like they can't be too good. They can't be too pure. They can't have actual pure motivations. So like in The Lord of the Rings, they're taking a lot of like the characters that you know and love from, from the Lord of the Rings itself. um, And and they're basically like giving them faults and failures and and things that are not really there in the source material, at least not to the extent that they're calling them out here. So I, I just think it's a trend that, reflects an elevated view of humanity and a, a lowered view a diminished view of sin and I think that's right. part of why we're seeing it like the the best story ever told is the gospel but in order for that to happen there has to be actually a bad guy and all of us are that bad guy until God makes us genuinely good not just gives us sympathetic sympathetic backstories or understandable motives, but actually changes us and that just it, it's just this trend in culture to do this.
0: That's a really interesting observation. and I'm down with that. I see that as like an outworking of this postmodern view, which is actually probably not trying to necessarily make the bad guys more complicated. Although some might argue, well, what you're getting here in the storytelling is more character development. So you can see like the nuance of... The fact that somebody here who is committing this great atrocity or supposed to be the antagonist isn't somebody has like these good elements. What I actually see is that's like a systematic dismantling of total depravity, isn't right. it? Yeah. It's trying to like edge away at by a million qualifications the fact that, well, this bad person is really not maybe as bad as you think, but you can have compassion or empathy for right. them because there's something good within them as like the center of their being. And that's like definitely in a hundred percent against like what the Bible tells us. Yeah. So I find that to be just this amazing outworking of postmodernism, which wants to try to assert that really there is no black and white. There is only gray. Yeah. And we would say, well, that's not the, the case at all. Like, in fact, God tells us the severity and the seriousness of our condition. He tells it to us in total candor. And as a result of that, anybody who is quote unquote good has been righteous and redeemed in a way that's so substantial that, as we've talked about before in this podcast, you're a new creation and that's the difference like there is good and there is evil and these are categories that matter and to try to edge away or chip away at the edges like the margins of them is really to diminish them altogether and while that might make i suppose for like more interesting or conflicted storytelling it doesn't leave you more satisfied because the satisfaction comes from knowing and appreciating and realizing that those are just real categories yeah and when you try to move away from that i think you'll actually find that it's not of course it's satisfying and it's actually worse storytelling because it's us trying to implant or supplant what we think the way that things are as opposed to the way that they really are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what about you? What are you denying today?
0: Yeah, I was so I told you when we started this that I didn't have like a really strong <laughs> like denial to start with. This sometimes is how it it goes. And um I would say like I'm I'm just going to piggyback on your denial. I, I hadn't actually thought about that, but your initial hypothesis or thesis that like, we just don't have good anymore characters that are like purely antagonists. Yeah. Because like, there's something to be said for the overpowering and like fully ubiquitous nature of evil yeah. that I think we tend to underestimate. In fact, maybe that's like a good thread into Orba talk about this idea of repentance and repentance as a spiritual discipline that is like necessary, even in the life of the Christian, the one who's been redeemed. I think that in a way shows that we're all in some ways apart from God, that antagonist. So I'm, is okay if I just like tag along with your denial, because that's, that's super strong. And I think it's, it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it because I hadn't thought about it before to kind of conjure that up and consider that and ruminate on it in light of like all the things that we watch and read. I I, I would say like, so let me put a question back to you in terms of this denial. Do you think like this, the thing that you've just promulgated is like, more or less, not entirely, but more or less like a recent conception, this idea of like trying to flesh out not just the character, but fleshing out like this confliction that we're supposed to feel, yeah, for the fact that what is evil is not entirely evil if there's like some kind of motive behind it that we can be empathetic towards,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't know how modern. I don't know how like super recent it is. And maybe I just feel maybe I just remember my childhood differently, but I feel like when I was younger, like the bad guys were just bad guys. Like, I don't know why, but like the Ninja Turtles is popping into my head. Like Shredder was just a bad guy. Like he was just a bad ninja who wanted to take over the world and like destroy things. Um, so it seems like even when there's an, there used to be maybe an attempt in more mature, uh, films and stuff to try to give the villain some sort of nuances instead of just, just being like a bad guy like a bad guy with a reason is fine, but it it really feels like, so here's like a, a real concrete example. And this is not a spoiler because we don't actually know who this person is yet, but in Lord of the Rings Rings of power, there's this character that everybody's calling the stranger. And there's a lot of theories about who he might be, but one of the things that's happening is he's kind of this unknown quantity in the show and he's a very powerful figure, but nobody really knows who he is. But it, the show is clearly trying to convince you that he is, at the least, a very confused person who, when he hurts people, it's accidental. He's not trying to hurt people. And one of the leading theories is that he's Sauron. Like, he, he's the big bad guy, but right. it's conceivable that maybe Sauron started off as like this confused stranger who didn't really know he was hurting people. And I I just don't, like, I'm not sure in what universe Tolkien would ever think, yeah, like Sauron might have this complex backstory where he's actually not that bad of a dude. I mean, he started <laughs> off as a good guy. I mean, he's a classic, in the, the, the actual story, he's a classic Satan figure. He started off as like a servant of the good and he fell from that and he was tempted away to evil. But it just seems like a lot of shows and movies you know, like you think about like Superman, it used to be that Superman was like this unassailable beacon of truth and justice. And he, um, he had to basically be like drugged by red kryptonite. If you wanted him to do anything that was even sort of morally questionable, like he just never would, he never would do that. And now modern iterations of Superman very much are Living in this sort of gray space, so exactly. I just I just think That's like it's yeah. it's very much a, a figure of our culture, and some of it is I think people used to be able to accept that. Going back to like that state of theology survey that we talked about a little bit last week, people used to understand that humans were basically not good. Like like they understood total depravity, even if even Arminians, you know, and Lutherans who would deny total depravity in a certain way compared to what we would say they would still recognize that however however it is humans more or less are tainted by sin and are going to be inclined towards evil now that that sort of isn't there these old school characters like if you think of an old movie where the bad guy is just just bad like the classic James Bond villain who wants to build a soup like a laser and just blow up the planet just because he wants to kill people like those characters almost don't make sense to people in modern audiences because they they don't accept the thesis that there are some people out there that are just bad people. Um and you see this in in maybe a little bit less of a I don't know, like a frivolous way. You see this when um there's like a mass shooting or something like that. Right. There there are very frequently and don't don't get me wrong, mental illness is a real thing, but there are people who will always sort of shy away from the statement of like this is just an evil act from an evil person to sort of find any excuse for this not to be what it just seems like it is just an evil person doing evil things so i'm not sure exactly how to how to answer that question i don't I, it'd be an interest like if i was a film studies major or something like that it'd be an interesting dissertation to look at um some some christian at like a liberal arts college a christian college who's doing film studies with a minor in biblical studies should investigate this, but it just seems like there's been a shift in our culture where the bad guy can't just be a bad guy anymore. I mean, most, right. Even if you look at most Marvel movies and I love Marvel movies, but even if you look at most Marvel movies, the bad guy almost always has some sort of, uh, redeemable characteristic or right. redeemable backstory where what he's doing is understandable. What they're doing is, um, admirable from a particular point of view there's like a certain a certain angle that you could look at it or or they're just misinformed they're confused they've been deceived um you know even revenge sometimes is seen as like this honorable thing it's just the things that used to be recognized as just bad guys doing bad things that just isn't a narrative that really functions in our society anymore so movies and books and literature reflect that
0: that's what I'm saying. It's just, I think that's an interesting observation. And again, you know me, like I know just enough about Marvel to be dangerous, but let me give you an example, which either you're going to shoot down, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but like, so this whole like Thanos thing. So like this idea that like it, the snapping is a big thing with the gauntlet, right? He, so he wipes out, am, am I right? Half yeah. the population. More or I less. should
1: just let you flounder, but yeah, yes. I'm just,
0: I'm just going to go. That's why I'm, I'm yeah, seeking he like, wap- affirmation. Wipes out half
1: of all living things.
0: Yes. I'm seeking affirmation as we go along to make sure I don't stray too far from the center. <laughs> but then the whole backstory is like, well, like more or less he's seeking after balance isn't right. balance. Great. Like don't you want work life balance? Like where he's coming from on this idea. And yeah. so while I'm sure that I'm trying to promulgate like you to have like a full compassionate and empathetic experience to what he's doing, there's still a sense of like, well, basically the same is you can see why he's doing it. Right. Like you can see why, like that that might be good. in some ways, like somebody might even misinterpret that great evil for a good thing. That's the problem is we're like we're undermining the presuppositions yep. of what is good. And that's why it's like a big deal to think about this because we might just be thinking, well, all they're doing is like character development. Like it makes yeah. it more interesting for us to consider like all the realities and the things that somebody's dealing with. And what we're trying to push against is like the Bible gives us the truth about the way things are. And that this, any kind of like massive, I know I'm like totally conflating like the Bible and Marvel at this point, but anything that would somehow result in like the mass extinction of life is in no way appropriate, yeah. no matter how you try to justify that. So it's just interesting, again, to your point that you can't just let bad be bad. It, it has to be couched in some kind of cloak of, can you at least appreciate that there's a struggle yeah. here? There's some kind of like redeeming quality in the intent. And that's something that I really struggle with because God tells us clearly that the heart of man is desperately wicked. So if we start there, then what we end up with is there's no intent that is good apart from God, full stop.
1: Yeah. Well, and even within the Marvel cinematic universe, even within that universe, there's a contingency of people in the MCU who there's like a slogan, like Thanos was right. So even like the, the after effects in the mcu storytelling it's not actually clear whether or not thanos did the right thing right so there's i guess there's there's sort of like the chipping away at total depravity secular humanism like nobody is truly bad nobody's truly good there's that element and then there's also this sort of like materialistic uh not like materialistic like i like a lot of stuff but like this materialism where like the ends justify the means because we're all just like Bags of fizzing chemicals. There's nothing transcendent. So in the MCU, Thanos snaps away half the population. And one of the first things we hear after that happens in Endgame is Captain America says something like, Oh, I saw whales in the I saw whales in the river. You know, there's less pollution. There's more more oxygen. Like they're they're calling out like the positive things. And then like when all the people come back. There's all these after effects. There's like world hunger and things. So there's even this element of like maybe Thanos was actually right. right maybe he exactly. was the good guy. Maybe it was the Avengers that were the right. bad guys. So it just there's just this overarching degradation of the concept that anything is truly evil, anything is truly good. It's this middle, this gray middle zone of, you know, I what is it? Dawkins says. Right. Like the universe is a cold, empty, pitiless place that doesn't care about you. Like right. there's no if there's no transcendent truth, there's no transcendent morals, then it really is just the end justifies the means and whatever makes this person feel good at the time is the right thing. So I just think that this is a it's something in our culture. You know, there's a lot of things to criticize modern movie making about this whole idea of like representationalism. That's a whole thing that I think would be an interesting conversation to have sometime. Um, but this element is something that I think is under, under recognized that the morals that are presented to us in a lot of modern movies are just sort of this weird middle gray zone where there is nothing right or wrong. Um, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's no good guy. There's no bad guy. There's just a story and someone we're rooting for. But if you want to root for the bad guy, like if you want to think that Thanos is actually the good guy and you want to root for him, then just think of, uh, just think of Endgame as a tragedy, a tragedy where your guy loses. Like that's, that's really what I think a lot of modern storytelling has become.
0: And this is the last thing I'll say, like there's something to be said here about the bias that's implicit in the very thing we're talking about. So it always strikes me as odd that, so let's say this, you go to, I don't know, you're purchasing trying to purchase a new vehicle and you go to the car lot and you speak with a salesperson and you discover that certain vehicles are going to pay more commission to that salesperson. Right. And all of a sudden you have this sense of like, well, of course they're going to push, push certain vehicles on me that may or may not be more expensive because they're going to make more money off it. And you'd say, aha, conflict of interest. Like I recognize that it's their present. It's the same thing here. So it's, it strikes me as funny. It's like, of course, we have these people trying to understand and speak about the human condition. And so like, are humans not going to have in their own like default nature, a high view of anthropology. Like why would they not have a high view of anthropology? Because that just makes us seem all the greater. So again, apart from God, apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we in every way are going to say like, listen, human beings are pretty awesome. And you know why they're awesome? Because I'm one of them. So like here you see that in the storytelling. So it just seems to me, it's fair to call it the bias and say, Hey, listen, you got a bias. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. Well, what are you uh what are you affirming this week? If you if you Let's make, it seems like our, our merge to denial has run its course. So what are you affirming this yeah, week? Yeah, it's
0: true. We that was about to become like its own episode. So my affirmation has to start just very ever so briefly with me being able to boast of my wife, which I'm always happy to do. And that is yesterday my wife and I attended this uh, amazing event. Uh like amazing quotation marks. It was a great event, but it was this uh, trail run where you pick a time period, 24 12 or six hours. And it's a one mile course and it's on a farm in Pennsylvania. And you just see how many times you can run this loop. And uh, I want to say to you all, and this I'm saying this very specifically, I only, only went around like did 17 miles. I say only because my wife did 35 miles and she is a girl stud.
1: She did that for 12 hours. Wait, wait, wait. And she ran 35 miles. Yes. 35 miles. A a marathon and a half yesterday.
0: Am I doing that math
1: somewhat right? I mean, a little bit shy of a marathon and a half. Over
0: 50K. If you're in the running community, you do everything by kilometers. And so she was over 50K. And so here's the reason why I bring this up is because yesterday was like notoriously difficult weather. We were in at least part of this part of the world, like the remnants of Hurricane Ian and we are getting torrential downpours. And there were several times I just bowed out of this process because I was like, I'm, I can't run right now. <laughs> the rain is too awful. I just can't do that. I'm not here for this. And I, I at least several times saw her continuing to go on, sometimes with people, sometimes by herself. I saw her continue to push on. And it reminded me of two things. And I, I, this is not a Jesus juke. This is the things that it reminded me of. The first thing was that I'm affirming that uh, no matter how much pain and physical torment we undergo in this life, and people have undergone far more pain than just being wet, being tired, having their legs sore, running for 12 hours, no matter what that is, when we consider the cross, we recognize that we will never, ever experience the full depth of the pain and the suffering and the punishment that we deserve, that Jesus Christ is born on our behalf. That's just a truth. The second thing is that I affirm that Jesus Christ is the most disciplined human being that has ever walked this earth. Yeah, And when you're in the midst of something like this, where you're trying to run for six or 12 hours, especially in really bad conditions, you just think of how hard it is to wrap your mind around the fact that you just need to put one foot forward. When everything tells you to just stop and go eat a piece of pizza, I just cannot, It's it, it takes that kind of event for me to really appreciate in the smallest way. That Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross, became human and condescended to live among us and to be like us. But then as you and I have talked about and enumerated before, this massive amount of obe- obedience that Jesus Christ undertook in every conceivable way so that it wasn't just about the death and the resurrection, but it was also about him living in full uh, comporting with the law. And so I'm just affirming Jesus Christ as the one who undertakes suffering in a way that we cannot imagine to save us from suffering we cannot imagine. And second, affirming him as the one who is the most disciplined and obedient Son of God, and whom we get to receive all of the blessings because he is the fully obedient human being. So maybe the, is this just an affirmation of Jesus is that is I think that what it just is turned into yeah.
1: <laughs> I think you rolled from affirming your wife into just an affirmation of Jesus, but isn't that how most things that were, most gifts that were given are supposed to work? Yeah, exactly. Our wives are a gift to us. And if we're not, if that's not rolling up to thankfulness to Jesus for who he is and what he's done, then are we even doing it right? I'd say no, of course not. No,
0: you're, yeah, you're totally right about that. That's, that's how this, I, I think ends is of course in Jesus, like all things ought to, but it was a strange way. Do you ever have a situation where like, something unfolds before you and you didn't anticipate it to strike within you this greater sense of either theological truth or doctrinal truth? That's what happened for me yesterday. Yeah. I was just watching my wife, appreciating my wife, proud of my wife, and then thinking about how even though that's a great accomplishment, of course, everything always pales in comparison to this discipline of Christ. And it is, it is in some ways like a very physical discipline that Christ has. You know, the getting yeah. up early and the praying— going to the cross willingly, suffering this punishment, which is somewhat physical. But as we said before, many have gone to that same kind of death. It's also Christ in the garden saying, Father, if it's not your will, I will drink this cup. And that cup is this like an immense and amazing punishment, like the full atonement for all sin. Yeah, That is something we just cannot conceive of, but we ought to worship him for. And so I found myself... While I was sitting in a car dry and watching my wife run in the rain, (laughs) I was thinking, I literally was, praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes a way for us in every way. So, yeah, uh, affirming Jesus.
1: Yeah, I'm all about that. I, I don't yeah. have an affirmation today, but I do have a recommendation. It's not quite an affirmation, although I suppose it. I could have just said I'm affirming this. Um, Josh Summers over at the Baptist Broadcast has been doing a short series. I don't know how short it is, actually. He just started it, could end up being very long. But um, if you're on uh, Reformed online media, you know, Twitter, whatever, um, you'll notice that there's been a renewed focus on theological critiques revolving around Doug Wilson. Um, which is always something that warms my heart when people want to critique Doug Wilson's theology, and so Josh has started doing some short kind of snips on theological critiques of Doug Wilson. So there's a lot of ways to critique Doug Wilson. There's critiques of his um, his theology. There's critiques of his morality and piety, his ministry. All of those I think are legitimate. They're all they're all legitimate things for us to look at and to be concerned about, but. I actually think that the thing that is most objective that we can assess and critique and publicly call out is his theology, right? We can draw conclusions about his piety based on what he says and does. We can draw conclusions about his ministry based on the fruit, but those are still relatively subjective things for us to assess, his doctrine and his theology, as complicated and confusing as it can be, and he certainly seems to intentionally make it confusing with a lot of equivocation and doublespeak. But as confusing as it can be, it's all out there and it's in print and it's objective and you can assess it. And so Josh has started doing these shorter videos, kind of looking at and and uh, podcast things, looking at different elements of it. So he did one on three things to know about Doug Wilson, which was kind of like, Hey, if you're, if you're considering becoming a Doug Wilson acolyte, then think about these three things. And then he's going, I think he's going to be going through each of those things in a little bit more depth. So he's on, on number two out of, Dot dot dot, um, and you can check it out over at the Baptist Broadcast, uh, or you could just subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters mega feed, and you'd get all those episodes anyways. But they're mega they're good. Josh is a sharp. I've said it before. He's a sharp thinker. He's really analytical. He knows his stuff, um, and he's he's one of those guys. And I wish that I was better at this. He's one of those guys that doesn't get swept into the snarkiness of it he's very, very dispassionate when he does theological analysis. So I think it's good for us to look at stuff like that and really appropriate it. I would quibble a little bit with with his critiques of the objectivity of the covenant, um, but he's a Baptist. So of course, he and I are going to disagree on some of those, but his criticisms of Doug are spot on. So check it out. You can go to Baptist Podcast uh, or you can check it out on the mega feed, uh, and I think you'd be edified uh, by listening to it.
0: That's great. I love that. That's a solid recommendation coming in like at the last minute there.
1: I know. I know. I didn't have anything. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Josh is doing the series. <laughs> that's great. So there you go. Thanks, Josh.
0: Well, let's uh, transition then you know, we rarely just like do the actual transition in words, but I think that's what we're doing here. Let's like, change
1: let's, to our subject.
0: Let us do our topic for this episode. And I love this conversation, this idea of talking about repentance as a spiritual discipline because, I like to think that sometimes we have the hot take, or maybe it's not like the hot take, but it's the thing that's like undervalued a little bit. And so instead of going like we could go in like all the directions we've gone before, and we you can go look in our back catalog where we talked about repentance, and we could come in hot with the theological perspective, the hard doctrinal line. But here's where I would like to start us, and it's with a series of questions, and I think this gets to the heart of what we're about to speak about, and that is something like. Let's ask, why do people who believe in grace so often seem to become self-righteous? Or why do we stand, why do those who like stand for the doctrines of grace, or like even fight for them, allow the reality of grace to fade into the background of our daily living? Or why do we appear to be not very different religiously from those who live around us in the world? Yeah. And my thesis, my hypothesis is this has a lot to do with how we understand repentance, not just as this doctrine that's great to give intellectual assent to and at one time to say, that was the thing that I did, but as like a practice of a spiritual discipline. Again, we, I kind of kind of baited everybody with this idea of speaking about discipline, discipline and running, discipline, doing something that's hard. And so is repentance really the kind of thing that is a discipline? I mean, let's talk about that. <laughs>
1: I love your. Is it really? <laughs> um, <laughs> is it really? Yeah. So so one of the things that's interesting, you know, the listener who's been listening to us since we started this series on systematic theology. I don't, I don't even know how many episodes in we are now. We've been basically just following the the structure and the format of the Westminster Confession. Um, and and one of the things that I was I'm surprised by, kind of surprised in real time by. The Westminster Confession follows um, the Westminster standards follow a basic two part structure, right? So, the early one of the early questions in both the what larger and shorter catechism is, What does the scripture principally teach? or the, the more expanded version of the, the larger. And the answer is, The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of him. And so, the Westminster larger catechisms actually split up explicitly between those two things what what must man believe and what must man uh, do what does God expect of man right. and what I'm finding is that the inflection point in the Westminster confession between those two topics is smacked out in the middle of of soteriology right so this this is labeled as the last episode of our soteriology section of this but it's going to transition directly into the first episode of what we're going to talk about is like the Christian life. And the more that I think about that, it makes perfect sense that salvation, the study of salvation would logically transition into the study of like what do we do about this now. So I think repentance is one of those inflection points where there's an element of repentance that has everything to do with how we're saved and what salvation is, right? We talked about it at length last week repentance is not something you do in order to be saved. It's something that you do because you are saved. It's not something you do to obtain salvation. It's something that flows out of a state of having been saved, having been redeemed, having been justified, having been adopted. It's part of your sanctification, which is just the ongoing Christian life. And so it makes perfect sense that we would also have this element of talking about repentance as what do we do now that we have Salvation. Now that salvation is a current, present tense possession of ours, what does repentance look like? And I love the way that the Westminster uh, Confession talks about this. So chapter 15 is of repentance unto life. Several of the sections are kind of straight doctrinal statements. And then you hit number five, uh, section five, it says, Men ought to not to content themselves with a general repentance but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So it's not, it's not just that we should have this sorrow for sin, right? The, the, Confession defines what repentance is as this sort of contrition and remorse over sin, not because it's not because it's dangerous, not because it's disgusting, but because it's offended God. We should have this sorrow right. over our sin. But then it goes on to say we shouldn't be content with just this sorrow over our sin, this general repentance, which is a good thing, but we should endeavor to repent of our particular sins particularly. And I when I think about that. I don't do that enough. I, that's a particular sin I need to repent particularly of because I don't I don't think that I spend enough time in my prayer life. I mean, I could just say full stop there. I don't spend enough time in my prayer life. But I don't think that in my prayer life, I spend enough time repenting of particular sins. I think we probably all in our sin, in our our prayers, have that kind of like, forgive me of my sins, God. But like, how often do we spend and take time to enumerate and verbalize to God particular sins that we have committed that he brings to mind that we repent of particularly i just don't think that we do it enough and i think you know the classic spiritual disciplines right richard foster's like streams in the desert kinds of spiritual disciplines bible reading prayer you know worship um those kinds of things fasting like those are things that i think we think about but this idea of repentance and and a related thing of kind of confession of sin not just to god although primarily to god but also confessing our sins one to another i just think that that's something that we probably don't we don't do enough so that that's what i wanted to talk about was to kind of unpack that a little bit and just think through what does this actually look like in the christian life
0: that's a really great question because I think the Christian right calls this like repentance always. And there is this conception that repentance is maybe we don't hold it exactly this way as we might articulate this idea of like a once and only thing. Right. But that there's like a different different levels of repentance. And so to me, I think the real problem is that we've forgotten that we're sinners. And this is in some ways it's like an intramural conversation. We know we have been sinners we rejoice that God has saved us from our sin through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. But now I think in some ways, maybe just in the back of our mind, we go on or we suppose that we're living on a higher level and we easily slip into the conviction that we are continuing to live on that level by our own efforts. And so, yeah, like anybody who's, I would say like disagree with what I've just said there and so would say like they're reformed is like definitely breaking from the reformed tradition right. because like Martin Luther was like very concerned about this. In fact, like this is one of the things that is enumerated. I think that's like the word of the episode enumerated in like his 95 theses, which he posts on the, the castle church in Wittenberg. And this is what he writes. He says, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Now, of course, like he is pushing against the Roman Catholic church, which would in some ways bristle at that statement, but in other ways would embrace it as a means of trying to to gain like absolution by way of like the the penance or, you know, confession. But this means that we should never cease being sinners and that we must honestly and consistently confess that we are sinners and that we must rely unceasingly on the sustaining grace of God to obey God. And to have our life in God and to serve others. So like in continual repentance, I think the thing that causes us to push against that is the fact that is in many ways saying, God, though I repented once and, and obtained salvation by way of being saved from all of my sin and that you have accomplished that, that it's in every day and every breath to say that I still fall short of that standard And I think in some ways we want to say, well, I've already done that thing. Yeah. And so like, isn't there repentance light where I just kind of say like, you know, God, like you've already taken care of everything. And so like, I'm just saying like, can you like true up or like satisfy up things that are maybe like on the margin? And what we're saying here is no, no, no. Like any kind of sin is that like, as R.C. Sproul would say, like, right, like, cosmic treason yeah it is like that kind of like a great offense this great offense of like profound nature and so like even though you have been saved the reason our response is to always request that salvation again not because you're losing it because you're reflecting the fact that god has and continually holds you in that salvation and it's still appropriate to say i am sorry that i want to turn away." entirely. Though there is a turning away that makes you the new creation in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, yet still every day there is the need to come and say, turn me away from my sin. Turn me away from that natural man. That never goes away. That battle is continually being fought. And so we have to kind of acquiesce, lean into that battle by saying, Lord, I need your help.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, we, we spent a couple episodes now talking about justification in a roundabout sense, right? We talked about like, what is faith and what's the definition of faith and how does getting the definition of faith wrong, corrupt and sort of pervert our soteriology. And we talked about repentance and like when, where does repentance fall in the of and how important it is for repentance to be seen as an outflow of our sanctification as part of our sanctification. And I, I wonder, I this is like me theorizing in real time here, I wonder how much of this misunderstanding of repentance that I th- I feel like is really just endemic in the, the sort of evangelical reformed world of this one-time event, how much of that is a result of us p- misplacing it in the Ordo Saludis, right? It's, it's kind of Phineasism, Billy Grahamism. You, right. Your repentance happens at that moment in time where you come down out of the bleachers and you get down on your knees and, you know, exactly. just as I am is playing in the background and you cry and then you you get up and you go back to your seat and then you get baptized for the third time that summer, right? So I, I wonder how much of this misunderstanding of repentance as as a one-time thing is an outflow of this sort of weird misplacing in the Orthodox solutes where we place it to be the most charitable I can be, we misplace it by placing it before justification. Even if we don't say that it is uh, required for justification or that it is a component of faith, like Lordship Salvation does, um, even if we don't commit those errors, we still place it before justification. And therefore, repentance is something that non-Christians do, right? It's something you do before you become a Christian, and it's part of becoming a Christian but like once you become a Christian, like you've kind of graduated from that, and you move on to a different kind of thing. And I just think that if we reorient ourselves the way that we've been suggesting, and the way that I would argue the the Reformed tradition consistently has, um, more or less consistently has placed repentance as part of your the outflow of your sanctification. It seems like, just like every other element of our sanctification, is an ongoing, ongoing discipline right? Sanctification produces these ongoing repeated behaviors, right? We, we repeatedly take of the Lord's Supper. We repeatedly um, partake of the preaching of the word. We repeatedly engage in acts of service. We pray and we worship on a weekly basis, a daily basis. Ideally, we, minute by minute is worship and praise and prayer to our God. Repentance, just if it's part of that same complex of things that flows out of our sanctification, it feels like it should be part of those same disciplines. And I think that's where I I know in my own personal spiritual life, I have a lot of room to grow. I mean, I have a lot of room to grow if I'm just being really transparent here. I do not pray nearly as much as I should. I don't spend nearly as much time as I do praying. I probably spend more time reading theology books than I do spend time praying. And I, I don't, I'm not, don't hear me coming in with like a man-made law. There's no divine inspired formula that says you must, for every one minute you read theology books, you must pray for five minutes. There's nothing like that. And I I don't know that, I don't, I don't know that I want to say in a firm sense that we have to like balance our life that way. I don't think that God calls us to have that, uh, a specific formula. But I know for my own life, when I look at it, I spend a lot more time doing theological, intellectual exercises, which have value. They're good things to do. They're profitable. They glorify God. There's nothing wrong with those things. But I spend a lot more time engaged in that kind of work, that kind of outflow of my sanctification than I do in prayer, and especially than I do in repenting of particular sins particularly. So uh, what I'd like to do, we have have maybe like 10 minutes left before we got to wrap it up here. I mean, it's our show. We can go for as long as we want, but we have about 10 (laughs) minutes left before we usually wrap it up here. I want to talk about like practical ways to make this happen, because I know like sometimes in theological podcasting and sort of like discussions about practical piety and things, there's a lot of theorizing about what we should do. But right. I want to I want to really kind of like drill down and dig into like, how do we actually do that? I don't want to be gimmicky, but sometimes right. a little bit of a gimmick is okay. Like it's fine to have a gimmick or a trick that you use to, to sort of trigger yourself into doing a spiritual discipline, like putting a post-it note on the mirror that says, pray before you get in the shower or something like that is fine. But what are some practical things that we can do to sort of make sure we're doing this repenting of our particular sins particularly?
0: we mentioned this before, and this is kind of like a, an easy go-to, but this idea of using the acronym of ACTS in your prayer life. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I think that it's, of course, easy to remember in the English language, but it's also particularly helpful in its ordering, its hierarchy, because yeah. it's this idea that we need a confession, I think, that is something like the line repeated by each participant at meetings of like Alcoholics Anonymous. This may seem drastic, but I don't, I don't think it's the case. If you know anybody who's gone through that program, you know that like the way that you present yourself is my name is, and I'm an alcoholic. It doesn't matter that the speaker may not have had a drink for several years. This idea of like, in some way, not in an an appropriate way, rooting your identity in the fact that you are a sinner, that there is a transgression that has caused you to be in this place where you need to have an outworking and a reworking of your life. And so I think that's part of our problem is that we want to so quickly move away from that time of repentance to say, like, that is something I've done. I recognize that I was a sinner and maybe I am a sinner, but now I'm like a sinner light. Yeah. So I think that the way in which we order our prayers, that we come to God first with this adoration of who he is. But before we get to any of the stuff, the stuff that we even want to thank him for and the stuff that we need him for, that we start by saying, I am a sinner. And I think like, even just in your mind, if you're saying that in your prayer life, this starts to change the context and the color with which we approach God. And that in many ways, dramatically influences everything that comes after that. But if, if instead we start with other things, even if we just start with who God is, I mean, of course, like who God is should lead us. If we're properly understanding who he is to say, I am a sinner that like my thoughts themselves, like the, in other words, like I think the subtle sins Get this rap as being insignificant sins, but that's not the case. All sin is all sin and God abhors all sin. He opposes the proud. He pushes against and fights against that which is contrary to his character. And so even as a saved person, we understand that anytime we disobey that law by thinking in something that's inappropriate, by considering ourselves first, by being wholeheartedly or even partially selfish, that what we need is repentance. We're always asking God to turn us away, regenerate us, cause us to be restored and rehabilitated. And in many ways to rise from the dead, we have to start there. So I think that one of the practical ways we can do that is by making sure our prayers, the way that we pray starts with like the prayer should be a gospel language and the gospel starts with what is messed up and worse and bad. If your prayers aren't starting that way, it's very likely that they're going to be like shaded or tilted in a way that's going to be at best unproductive and unfruitful and at worst that might edge or tilt toward unbiblical. So I would say the first thing is to start in your prayer
1: life with making sure that confession is near the top. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember, um, I don't know that either of us have ever spent like an extended period of time on the show talking about our, our testimonies, and how we, how we came to faith. But I remember, you know, there was this long process starting when I was in maybe like fourth grade, where it was clear that God was starting to bring people into my life and sort of drop gospel nuggets in my life. I know you love talking about nuggets, but (laughs) dropping like little, little hints of the gospel in my life through various people so that when the fullness of time for my own salvation came, I was, I had already been prepared with a framework and a language to understand what it was that I was I was going to be doing. and one of those one of those things happened. I had to have been fourth or fifth grade. I don't remember exactly. And there was a friend of mine named Luke, and he um he was one of those kids that I think was raised in the church. and so he he probably had a genuine faith, but also um it wasn't all of that important to him. It wasn't like the central feature of his life. So I'm not making pronouncements about his his salvation or anything like that, but he he sort of was one of those, Christian kids who lived in the world when they were in their public school. And I remember um, there was one time he was kind of talking to me about Bible camp and the gospel. And then the next day I said, I said a swear word and he looked at me and he said, God doesn't like it when we swear. And I mm-hmm. was sort of trying to like, I wasn't a Christian. I was not converted. I, I was really, I think mostly probably trying to impress this kid who was who a friend of mine, but I was trying to look cool and look good and i stopped and i said out loud god forgive me for sinning and and i wasn't saying it flippantly i mean it wasn't a genuine prayer but i wasn't saying it flippantly and i remember he looked at me and it was just he he didn't know what to make of that and i tell that story because i think one of the most important things we can do to train ourselves to do this repenting of our particular sins particularly is to not delay when we, when we confess our sins to God for sure. Right. So if you, if you're one of those people who kind of like stocks up and wants to like confess all your sins at the end of the night before you go to bed, there's nothing, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. Again, there's no prescribed way to do this. So there's Christian liberty and, and prudence to do this. How you feel is the right way to do it, that you think God is, is directing you through the scriptures. But I know for me, taking a moment when i recognize that i've sinned and first of all even before i confess my sin to god because and i i think this is important i think i can back this up biblically but actually if if my sin involves another person and i've sinned against someone else going to them and confessing my sin to them and seeking forgiveness for them from them as quickly as it comes to my mind not delaying not waiting for the right opportunity just going and confessing that sin to the person i sinned against that principle also applies to God. So, so once I've done that, taking the time to, or if, if it doesn't involve another person or someone that I don't have access to to apologize to, taking the time to pray and confess my sin, and seek repentance of that particular sin as quickly after it comes to my attention as I can. Now I think there is some value, if, you know, thinking about this pastorally, I think there's some value in reflecting on your day at the you know, at the end of the night or reflecting on your You know, maybe it's Sunday morning, you kind of take stock of the previous week and you think through what are the areas that I my my sanctification has not been complete? What are the areas that I haven't done well? You know, did I did I lie to my boss when I didn't get that that project done and I made up some excuse? Did I lie to my boss about that? Well, if you did, then you need to repent of that. And maybe you need to go to your boss and say, I'm really sorry. I I just ran out of time to do it and I made an excuse. I'm really sorry, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna work on it hard this week. Whatever it is, I think both of those practices are important, but I think we need to train ourselves to repent of our sins in the moment that we recognize them. And what that does, I think, is it trains us to have almost a reflex against sin to reflex when we sin to repentance. So it's not that we sin that grace might abound, but our sin does serve to bring us to a state where grace is more present to us our repentance is more active and grace is more present to us. I just think that's a good practice to be in. And just on a practical note, it's always going to be better for you to seek reconciliation and forgiveness for a sin or a transgression against a person soon after the offense. That's always going to go better than if you you wait on it and let it fester. And that principle... It's not as though when we go to God, we somehow get more forgiveness for our sins, right? We're not being re-justified every time we do this, but there is a disruption in our experience of God's grace towards us, in the subjective experience of our salvation, right? I think that when David in Psalm uh, 51 prays, take not away from me the joy of my salvation, take not your Holy Spirit from me, I don't think that David is saying, God, please don't let me become unsaved. Right I don't think that God would put inspired scripture forward that's contrary to what he teaches us about the security of salvation. I think what's going on in that psalm is David is recognizing that the subjective experience of the holy spirit's presence in his life the subjective experience of the joy of his salvation that sin robs him of that and so in his repentance he's he's begging god not to take that away and it's it's a twofold action right asking god not to take it away you can't just ask god not to take it away Without actually confessing your sin and repenting of it. So I think the more that we get in the habit of doing that kind of in the moment, real time, I just think that's a good practice. Um, and I think we have a tendency to forget when we wait, um, just in general, like postponing things tends to cause you to forget things. Just in general, doing it in the moment and getting it done at the, at the time, I think is a really just a really good practice. And we see that
0: like logically, right? Like this idea of like paying your debts as they come due. Presumably all of us have obligations, liabilities that we receive bills for. And we understand the immediacy of satisfying those things. And Spurgeon was good in talking about this, this idea of keeping short accounts with God. So you're right on. And that in some ways also expresses like the immediacy and the sensitivity of the heart that if you have offended a party, in this case, God, that the best thing you can do is make quick amends by seeking forgiveness and repentance for that offense. So I'm totally down with that. And and that, again, I say, I would say in some ways, like portrays our commitment to sanctification, that we want to ask God to illuminate in our lives the places and the ways in which we have offended him, and then to make like immediate repentance for that. Like there's no reason to wait. Like if your quiet time, so to speak, or your nugget is in the morning or the evening, that's fine. But what God would want from us is that we'd have this heart that would both not only seek to ask for repentance as soon as possible to make amends, but then would also would try to produce like a breaking off of sin. I just want to kind of like jump on what you said by way of saying a as difference as between identity and harmony. Right. So I want to just, again, emphasize that what we're saying here is that once saved by God, your identity is secure. And yet there can be a disruption in the harmony of your relationship with God. And by either knowingly or inadvertently keeping this distance of time between like the commission of the offense and the repentance of the defense, that is a disruption of harmony. Your identity is is secured. And yet at the same time, this joy of salvation, which in some ways I understand to be this reflection of like the harmony, the joy, like the just amazingness of being in lockstep or in righteous relationship with God, that is something that you always want to at the same time preserve. And that comes from expressing and understanding the fact that there is like a harmony in God. And then I just want to add to that, this idea of, True repentance, I think, produces like a breaking off from sin. Sometimes we have to pray that God would want us to want to break away from sin. And yeah. that's a great and a lovely prayer. But true repentance, I think, shows itself in a thorough breaking off from sin. The life of a repentant person is altered. The course of their daily contact is entirely changed. A new king reigns in their heart. And it's okay to pray that God would come and seat himself in that place where he has supremacy over all of our desires so that we desire is the good things, that we desire the things of holiness. And that puts off the old man. So what God commands, we now desire to practice. And what God forbids, we now desire to avoid. And so even praying in that way, I think is a practical way to say, God, bring repentance, not just again in this idea of saying, I've done these things, which I regret, which I maybe even have like this great sense of regret for. But now that also going forward, I forsake those things. I forsake them in obedience. I forsake them for the blessing that comes from obedience. I forsake them from the increased and sustained harmony of our relationship with you. I think that as well is a place where we can move from what is just like, again, giving this idea of doctrine into a place where it impacts how we
1: behave on like Monday through Friday. Yeah. And one last um, practice that I found is very helpful is... So uh, uh, people who've listened to the show over the last couple months know that I'm on kind of this like productivity journaling kick, right? I read Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte. I've been doing the Zettelkasten method. And one of the things that I do is I have an evening, sort of an evening recap that I do. And I, I sometimes I do it the following morning, but I do a, a daily recap of my day. And it's not quite journaling. It's usually bullet points. But one of the things that I have in my daily recap is the Ten Commandments, and so every night I read through the Ten Commandments, and I'm 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 working on memorizing the Ten Commandments, and what that does is I take time and I actually go through and say, okay, God, um, did I put anyone or anything in front of you today? And I take a minute to think about that. Mm. Okay, did I did I create any idols? Did I did I substitute? a lesser version of you did i do anything today that violates your uh, the regulative principle of worship or the regulative principle uh, we'll talk about the regulative principle when we get to that in this little series here but did the regulative principle what i call the regulative principle of good works right did i do anything that i think uh, i think would please you but your word has not commanded me to your word has not authorized me to uh, have i taken your name in vain have i have I violated um, the the Sabbath? In you know I, that's a little bit harder to do during the week, but the Sabbath principle isn't just that we worship on the Lord's Day, but it's that we cease from all all evil, right? So I go through each of the Ten Commandments and I I think about it. All right, Did I dishonor my parents? Did I did I reject lawful authority that you've placed me under? Have I abused the authority that I have? Right? So right. I go through each of those and. If, if I'm not going to show people, but if, if you were to look at my journal, you're going to see areas that I've written down specific things that I've done that violate those Ten Commandments.
0: Mm.
1: Every day, there's something in at least every single one of those categories. And that just serves—memorizing the Ten Commandments in itself is going to automatically cause this process to be more forthcoming because God's law is ever before you, right? You hide the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord in your heart. That's that's a good thing. But going through this process has really opened my eyes to see how far short I fall. and that just goes to show how great my Savior is. So I think that's the last thing I'll say about this is that repentance should not become a source of discouragement. because even when we see how fall, how far short we're falling, that should drive us to praise for how good and great and glorious and sufficient of a savior we have. And that's the other thing that I think is really important to maybe take this back into the theoretical a little bit. This is why it's so important to place repentance in its proper place in the ordo salutis, because if repentance, especially repentance in this sort of flavor of what we're talking about, if that in any sense is prior to your justification, even if it's not a component or a requirement for your justification, an increase in the recognition for and the practice of repentance is going to cause you to question whether you're justified, right? When you look at your life and you see how sinful you are and you repent of it, you're going to constantly be asking, have I repented enough to make it to the next step? Well, if you have repentance properly placed in in our sanctification, where the Reformed confession, the Reformed tradition puts it, where the Bible puts it, rather than driving you to despair because you're wondering if I've repented enough to make it to the next step, what you see is that this is just a part of the ongoing Christian life. It's right. a constant ongoing practice of recognizing the places where my sanctification is incomplete, where God has not yet fully sanctified me, where the old man still clings on, where the war is being fought, right? All of this is language out of our confession, right? There's a war between the the sanctified part and the corrupt part. And the sanctified part will win out over time, but this act of repentance, this discipline of repentance, is the act of looking at the battlefield and seeing where we're losing ground or where we haven't gained ground, and then repenting of that, seeking to change that. And I think a part of this is also striving forward, right? When a a general looks at the battlefield and they see that they've lost this strategic point, they readjust their plan they look and go how do i recapture that point how do i how do i make how do i take ground in this battle is the question they're constantly asking and this practice of repentance is a similar kind of question not only is it man i really screwed up and i'm sorry but there's a part of it that is how do i gain ground how do i push forward in this battle where i've lost god give me the strength to persevere and to push forward and to take ground from Corrupt part and to let the sanctified part win out. And all of this, of course, hedged in the whole conversation about God's sovereignty and and providence. Of course, this is a reform podcast, so you have to keep all that in the background. But this is a part of the Christian life. It is a striving after holiness that we have to constantly be doing. And this, I think, I think repentance is just a piece of that striving that a lot of times we just overlook.
0: I agree. Repentance is like a critical element and part of our desire to live in communion with God, to respect what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And I totally agree with you. If you're looking for a lovely rubric in which to kind of immerse yourself in your practice of repentance, going through the Ten Commandments is a perfect place. And again, because this has been brought to you by the word enumerate, I would recommend... Martin Luther's enumeration of the Ten Commandments, where he goes in the great detail and specificity and particularism with all of this to help you understand how we have all transgressed on a daily basis the Ten Commandments and how that pushes us into repentance. And then to your point, gives us by the grace of God, absolution from that. So you receive both the word and you should come forward with repentance and then also then receive these means of grace in the absolution. This is the harmony that we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think this has been, I hope this has been helpful for people because again, one of the things we want to try to avoid is being this kind of podcast or have these conversations where it's all about just very technical theological matters, although that's appropriate at many times, but even in our being really technical, the idea is to move into a place where we fall at the feet of Jesus and that we thank him, and that we worship him, and that we have a relationship with him in a way that's not perfunctory, that's not performance-based, and it's not right. And so like, there's a lot here that is meaty and worth chewing on and ruminating on. So I hope that this has been helpful to people in trying to understand how we might apply the idea of repentance, again, not just as a concept that is somewhere like we slot into the Ordo Salutis but that is actually a way of life. It's not just a season. It's a way of life. This is what we do as Christians. And we don't shy away from that. We don't outgrow it. We always sit in that classroom of repentance. And in sitting in the classroom, we not only gain great knowledge, but we gain great comfort.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's just about as good a place as any to end it. So um, stay tuned. I'm really excited about what's coming up in this series. I'm super excited to sort of you know, Jesse and I were talking about um, where this series is going and, and what's coming next, and we're starting to get into areas of theology that, at least if I'm remembering right, we haven't actually covered a lot, if at right. all. So I'm excited. We're going to be talking about the law and, and the, the uses of the law, which I know we've covered sort of in tangents. We're gonna be talking about church and culture, church and state, that kind of stuff. Um, we're gonna be talking about some more practical stuff about the Christian life. So I'm super excited to be doing that. And one of the things that I think is important for us to to close out is just to say thank you again to all the people who support the show. So sure. we have a we have a, a a good number of people who are. Um, once they've fulfilled their obligations to their local church and taking care of all their other bills, they have a little bit left over and have decided to share some of that with us generously. There's not a ton of expenses that we incur for this show. We try to keep it really lean, but there are some things that we do have to pay for from time to time. So we're excited that there are people who partner with us to make sure that that's possible, that we can make sure that this show is free and that it'll stay free. So if you are one of those people that might have a little bit left over and you want to contribute to this, um, you know, one of the things that we're committed to doing is As we have funds and as we have surplus, we try to be generous with those surpluses uh, and help other shows that are producing. Like-minded content, um, maybe starting some new shows and helping them get off the ground. So, if you are one of those people that has a little bit left over and wants to share uh, generously and help us uh, kind of on this mission that we're on, you can go to uh, Patreon.com/reformbrotherhood or you can go to ReformBrotherhood.com and there's a, a little button in the top right that says Join the uh, Join the Brotherhood. There's ways to get involved there. And if you, you know, if you would, um, if you are so generous as to donate, we just want to say thank you because it really does make a huge yes. difference in terms of our ability to feel uh, feel sustained in this show and feel like we are able to keep going because we don't ever have to worry about the finances. We've just got generous people who've taken care of that for us. Yeah, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. it. Pledge drive gonna, over.
0: No, I thought that was going to be more, but that that's exactly the truth. Yeah, What most people don't know is you and I talk about that quite a bit of how thankful we are for those yeah. who come and help support those means. So it, that's... All that needs to be said, thank you. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for making sure that this conversation that you and I have on a weekly basis is available to all who want to hear it and to whom all those that the Lord's leading to. And we should say like, maybe one of like the hidden baseball things is that we get some regular feedback from those who just stumble upon this. Yeah. Like they're not actually looking for it. And then they will write to us the most beautiful and loving things about how God has used this to change something within their lives or to pull them deeper into relationship yeah. with him or to promote the scriptures in a way that gives it hegemony over their lives. And of course when we receive those things, I think we always say, my goodness, isn't God good to us? Yeah. We we yeah, didn't do sure. this thing. God did this thing. Yeah. And by people coming along and making it free and available that you are in in many ways supporting for somebody who is down and out or has been discouraged or is searching for the scripture for the truth, that they are finding it, not because you and I are particularly articulate, but because God is good always. Always. So with that said, Tony, we got a lot of good things ahead, which you've already said. You tease that really well. So (laughs) people are like super stoked that, of course, you know, with the Reformed Brotherhood, the best is yet to come. That's just how we do, because... Hopefully, it can never be worse than it is right now. So, <laughs> oh my God is going to make it better in the future. It's all so, uphill from here. Exactly. With that, well, uphill or downhill? It's
1: uphill because it, it can't be worse. <laughs> okay, it's getting better. Well, we should stop.
0: With that said, honor everyone. Love
1: the Brotherhood.